Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Sheldon Richman. Sheldon is the executive director of the Libertarian Institute. He's formerly worked for the Foundation for Economic Education, edited The Free Man for 15 years. He's also worked at the Cato Institute, the Institute for Humane Studies, and the Council for a Competitive Economy. Mr. Richman is also freelance for many publications, including the Washington Report on the Middle East Affairs. He's written six books, including Coming to Palestine, which we are going to be discussing today, What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, America's Counter-Revolution, The Constitution Revisited, Separating School and State, another common topic that we have on this show, Your Money or Your Life, Why We Must Abolish the Income Tax, and 
Tethered Citizens, Time to Repeal the Welfare State. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, I've uh, followed your work for quite a while. We've corresponded for a bit, um, and I have enjoyed your perspective on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I think we find ourselves in a lot of agreement. If anybody's tuning in for fireworks and fights and acrimony, I'm unfortunately going to disappoint you today. Uh, this is going to be a lot uh, more measured because, um, well, because we agree, also maybe because we are libertarians and we are capable of having civilized conversations. So even when I had Walter Block on, it was civilized and it wasn't a very acrimonious I wanted to discuss your perspective on uh, the Palestinian question as a libertarian and as an American and as a Jewish person who's been to Palestine and has uh, changed his perspective over the years on this question. So uh, why don't we begin, first of all, with your background, how you became a libertarian, why you became a libertarian, and then what made you interested in Palestine and Israel? Well, I was, like a lot of people, I was a libertarian before I ever heard the word I was born uh, at the end of the 1940s, give you a little bit of a dating of myself there. Uh, and so I grew up in the 50s and the early 60s, uh, still, you know, coming of age. And my uh, and I heard stories, read stories, had seen movies on uh, and things on TV about the American Revolution and always was fer- favorably disp- disposed to that to the, you know, the version of the, that story we all have about individual liberty that always appealed to me from my, the moment that I had any political awareness, uh, I was uh, pro-liberty. In those days, that sort of meant you were conservative. That's the way it was presented. So I thought of myself as a conservative. I'd never heard the word libertarian. And I joined, uh, you know, I was getting late in high school, began to, uh, you know, freshman in college. Joined the Young Americans for Freedom, which was an organization set up by William F. Buckley and, and and that whole that movement, the conservative movement. But very quickly realized, began to realize and, and met people, began to realize there was a big division in what at that point was called the uh, conservative movement. You had what were called the trads, the traditionalists, and the libertarians. And we had this big uh, showdown convention in 1969 in St. Louis, Missouri, where I I was there where the libertarians uh, got defeated. We tried to elect people to the national board. We got defeated by a a lot of other people who were shouting lazy fairy. That's a play on laissez-faire. This is the conservatives, lazy fairy, lazy fairy. And of course we got beaten pretty badly. And we thought there's no future for us uh, in this organization. So we left. And uh, the core of the people that, uh, that, that, broke off were in Philadelphia, where I was, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we set up the Society for Individual Liberty, which which grew. And, uh, you know, we were urged on by Mary Rothbard and uh, and other libertarians who were already kind of a little ahead of us and, and re- ahead of us and realized that there was no no place in the, for us in the conservative movement, which we understood. We had differences on foreign policy. We had lots of differences on domestic policy. I mean, they claimed they were for the free market, but the conservatives – violated that all over the place. They were more interested in tradition and stuff like that. So that, that's how all that began. Uh, I grew up in a, uh, a Jewish family, conservative Jewish, not Orthodox, not Reform. Um, but by the, uh, by the end of the 60s, I was already a completely secular person. I had given up all, all religion. I, I just became convinced that 
it it uh, I don't believe it has a basis in fact or reality. However, I was still kind of pro-Israel. I mean, I grew up with the version of Israel. I mean, we went to Hebrew school, and a, a large part of Hebrew school as a kid was teaching an affection for Israel. Dare I say dual loyalty? I mean, in my classroom and in, and in the synagogue, there were two national flags that, that were on, uh, you know, flagpoles inside. The American flag, of course, and the Israeli flag. There wasn't, uh, there was no Japanese flag or, uh, you know, Lebanese flag, no other flags, two, two flags only. So, uh, part of that was to teach us to grow up to be, if we don't move there, if we didn't move there ourselves, at least send a lot of money and be loyal to, uh, Israel along with the United States. It wasn't a conflict. It was presented as kind of a unity. Uh, so that took a few more years after my, after I uh, realized I was a, uh, a non-believer, a non-religious person, it took a few more years to give up the other part of it. Because the, the thing is, these days, you not just these days, but for the last several, many decades, what makes you, makes a person a good Jewish American or, you know, Westerner, uh, is not that you believe in God, not that you keep kosher, not that you do any of those things, but that you were pro-Israel. And this actually was predicted in the early days, I'm talking about the late 19th century, by Reformed Jews and even Orthodox Jews who thought if they get in Israel, if they do get in Israel, if the Zionist movement succeeds, it's going to it's going to distort the religion. It's going to become a form of idolatry where instead of uh, making God and Torah the center, this state will be the center. And I have to say they were prophetic. That those predictions came true. So that's kind of in a in a nutshell there my story. Yes, and so uh, you were you were, you were still a Zionist up until at what point would you say is this in the nineteen seventies? In in the seventies, I met someone who said uh, I thought I had heard I had assumed there was a sort of a libertarian story, very much like Bloch uh, told you and how and in his writings that land was bought. Land was a. I, I didn't believe it in biblical terms, but the land was legitimately purchased, and that seemed why is that not consistent with uh, you know libertarianism? An old friend of mine who who died many years ago said, "Well, it's not really quite like that," and he recommended that I read David Hurst's book, "The Gun and the Olive Branch." Hurst is a British. Uh, they're still around. A British journalist. His book has it's a pretty thick book. It's gone through about three editions. Very, fa- very fair. I mean, he try he gives both sides, all sides. If there's more than two sides, you know, a fair shot. And and see, he said you ought to read this book. So I read and I began to read and I began to read other things as well. And I realized it's not a libertarian story. There was dispossession. You know, going back. Certainly in the 20th century, there was a problem with the Balfour Declaration and all that stuff, so that the libertarian story fell apart. I think Bloch's case is ridiculous. And, of course, he wants to even reach back to biblical times, which makes it, I think makes his case even worse. <laughs> yeah. So for uh, listeners who might not be familiar, I've had a Walter Bloch on this podcast. We had a debate, him and I, discussing the libertarian case for Israel. And he tried to make the case, and um, his argument was that, well, the Jewish people have lived in this land 2,000 years ago, so they have 
a property right claim on it, and therefore uh, all the, uh, he he specifically said all the property rights uh, that existed pre nineteen forty eight are invalid because two thousand years ago this was the land of the Jewish people, and so anybody who was not Jewish in nineteen forty seven all their property rights are invalid. Now, I believe this is completely absurd because, first of all, let's look at... Uh, so there are many, many, many versions of Zionist uh, uh, explanations of this. The most common one is not as ridiculous and insane as the Walter Block view. The most common one says that there was nobody in the land and that the land was just empty and that uh, Jewish immigrants came, bought the land, and then after they built the country... Arabs started fighting, demanding that land, uh, weirdly enough. But of course, this is uh, completely absurd. The land was uh, very well settled. Uh, only a third of the population in 1948 was Jewish. Two-thirds was not Jewish. It was Christian and Palestinian, uh, Christian or Muslim. And uh, the one-third of the population in 1948, the majority of them had only arrived in the past 10 years. So in 1938, the vast majority of that one-third was not even there. But if you look at the ownership of land, and this is very well documented. So the idea that it was an empty land is ridiculous. This is very, very well documented. Uh, you see here, this plot, which you can see, shows you in each district how much land was owned. And this is United Nations studies. This is a study that was done by the United Nations. They had sent a team that they went to every district and looked at the land records and they were able to calculate this. And you see in every single district of Palestine, the land was predominantly uh, owned by Muslims and Christians. Jews were a minority of the population, but they were also a much bigger minority of land ownership. Depends on how you estimate it, but it was around somewhere between 7 to 10% uh, of the land was owned by Jews at that time. So before 1948, it was possible for Jews to own land in Palestine, and they owned something in the range of 7%, 8%. It depends exactly on how you define pro uh, uh, private land versus public lands. The most generous definition that you could come up with will come up with an uh, estimate of about 12% land for Jews in 1948. But 88% or 93%, somewhere between 88 and 93% was owned by uh, Muslims and Christians and the Druze, the other minority. And you see this in every single district. And so Yaffa is the one that had the biggest majority or the biggest minority of land owned by Jews because that's where Tel Aviv is. And that was 39% of the land was owned by Jews. Haifa was 35%. Tulkerem, where I'm from, was only 17%. And uh, Nazareth, 28%. Acre, 10%. Safad, 10%. Uh, Tiberias was only 28% and Bisan was 34%. So in the vast majority of the lands owned by Palestinian. Now, the Zionists either resort to the more common view which you get in um, American conservative circles and in American Zionist circles in general. I shouldn't say conservative, conservative and liberal as well, which is that, well, there was nobody there. And, uh, well, none of this stuff matters. You got to give Walter Block points for creativity, which is saying that, well, it doesn't matter if they were there because 2,000 years earlier, <laughs> the, the Jewish people had lived there. Now, this is particularly absurd because different definitions of different people have lived in different places at different times. And in nowhere else is this, uh, nowhere else have I ever seen this idea that somebody could go to a piece of land and say, hey, I am part of this ancient people that used to live here 
thousands of years ago, and therefore your property rights are invalid. So um, get out of your homes, give me your homes, I need to move in. This doesn't happen anywhere. You can't go to, say, um, Sweden and say, hey, I'm a Viking, I'm the original Viking, and I want to be a Viking, and now I want to kick everybody who identifies as Swedish, I want to kick them out. And this, I think it's, uh, you know, you might say, well, no, that's not the same thing because the Swedish people are the Vikings. Well, the Palestinian people are (laughs) the Canaanites and the Jews. Most likely, if you look at DNA studies, you see that the average Palestinian has got probably more Jewish DNA from the ancient DNA of Jews than the average European Zionist uh, immigrant in 1940s who had come in and had a lot of European blood. So obviously, I I don't believe land and property rights are determined by genetics. I'm just uh, bringing this up to illustrate the absurdity of the Walter Block position. In 1918, David Ben-Gurion who would be the first prime minister of Israel, the later Israel, 30 years later, and Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, who would become the second president of the, of Israel, the state of Israel later on, 48, or whenever he comes into office, he's not the first president. They wrote a book together. It's never been translated into English, as far as I can tell, where they argued that, and of course, Ben-Gurion was the leader, one of, certainly one of the leaders of the international Zionist movement to establish a state in Israel. It's not some secret cabal. This is an open movement to create pressure for a state. He argued in that book that the Palestinians, in other words, first of all, acknowledging that there were Arabs in Palestine, so we'll call them Palestinians, whether or not they use that term, although that term does go back further than people think. He said those people are the descendants of the Judeans. He says that. Now, his strategy at that time might have been, let's win them over to our side. These are our brethren. That's how they talked. He drops that later on. Ben Zvi, who actually had expertise in this area, Ben Gordon wasn't particular at, you know, uh, descendants or, you know, that kind of thing. That wasn't his field. He was a political activist mainly. But Ben Zvi actually has some expertise in this. And I think Ben Zvi maybe even wrote his own book later on on this point. But they end up dropping that because it didn't go over, right? It wasn't convincing uh, Arabs in Palestine to welcome Zionist takeover with open arms. So they said, okay, let's let's forget about that strategy. But it's very interesting that 1918, they say this, and you can find details about this book. It's, un, it's untranslated, and I don't read Hebrew, but you can find it in Shlomo Sand's book, The Invention of the Jewish People. It's got quite a lot of detail there, so that's very interesting. Now, your point about 2,000 years ago, I think we can take even further Although, you know, this will get me into trouble with some people. How did the uh, the forces under Joshua, this is right in the book of Joshua, how did they get the land? They didn't buy it. They conquered it. They kicked, they ethnically cleansed. Now, they might say, well, God told me to do it. Well, okay, you can believe that or not believe it. It's up to you. But there's no doubt in the scriptures, in the book of Joshua, which is part of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, Armies go in and conquer, and in many, many cases, they're ordered to kill everybody, men, women, children, livestock, everything. And on occasion, they could keep the virgins, the virgins who, if they were attracted to them and make, wanted to make them their wives, they're allowed to do that sometimes. This is coming, this is, this is orders from God, not just a suggestion, an order. And then occasionally, when they let some people live, they got the, the forces that let a few people live got caught hell for it. What do you mean you didn't kill everybody? We told you to kill everybody. So 
you can't argue you can't argue the Bible. You can't argue the Bible. Maybe with there ought to be a Canaanite liberation movement. Where are the Canaanites? They must be somewhere. Why can't they come back for their land? You know, they'll be they they outrank the PLO. They preceded the PLO, right? The CL, the CLO, the Canaanite Liberation Organization. Where are they? Nobody speaks for them. I'll speak for them. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. <laughs> yeah, I, let's uh, let's do that. Let's start the uh, Canaanite Liberation uh, Front. I mean, I think it, it, that is obviously absurd. I, I don't mean that. I think yeah. um, the, 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 the point here, the really important point, which I believe is just uh, amazing how people miss this, which is that there's everywhere in the world has witnessed conflicts before, but everywhere in the world, there is a system of property rights that is more or less accepted by pretty much everybody with small minor disputes about uh, various plots of land. And that was the case in Palestine in the 1940s. And that was the case since the 19th century. So the Ottoman Empire had control over the land. People had local autonomy. There was the what was called the millet system, wherein every group, every religious group had the right to live by its own law, to have its own courts handle its own civic affairs. And everybody just paid a little bit of tax to the empire, to the Ottoman Empire. But under that system, you could own land regardless of what your religion was. And so everybody was able to own land. And so the notion that at some point um, Europeans get persecuted in Europe, and so therefore, you know what? No, nope. two thousand years of property rights in Palestine have been invalidated because we want to go back is just completely absurd. There is no way to justify that. And I think another interesting point about this is that people will say this. You hear this common thing, which is that well, the Jews had the land, then the Muslims came and took it over, and that's not correct. Um, because the Muslims did not take over the land in the sense of what the Zionists did in the 20th century, which is let's ethnically cleanse the local population or even let's force them to become Muslims. This is a very, very um, important and overlooked point, which is that when the Muslims uh, took the land, the land was under the rule of the Roman Empire at that time, at that time the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and they had eradicated 
almost uh, entirely the Jews from Jerusalem. There were still Jews in the rest of Palestine, in the north of Palestine, in the south of Palestine. But Jerusalem itself, you would get killed if you were a Jew and you were found in Palestine. So that was part of the takeover of the Romans was that they destroyed the temple and they banned Jews from coming to Jerusalem. It was, it was not possible for Jews to come to Jerusalem. And the residents of Jerusalem at that time were Christians. And a lot of them were likely had converted to Christianity because they were Jews before, but they converted to Christianity so that they could stay where they were. Now, when the Arabs came, this is a very important point, the Arabs did not come in as a population. It was not a uh, an occupation wherein the Arabs came in, occupied the land, and kicked out the local residents and replaced them with Arabs. No, they kicked out the rulers and they ruled the land, but they did not kick out the residents. In fact, what they did was they, uh, very famous in Islamic history, what the Umar, uh, the caliph at that time, what he did to the Christians was that he uh, he told the Christians that he was going to protect their uh, souls, their money, and their shrines. He wouldn't touch any of their churches. He wouldn't uh, destroy anything the, uh, that they held sacred. And he let them continue to live where they were. But the one thing that he did that the Christians didn't like was that he let the Jews back into Jerusalem. That was after 500 years of exile, the, the first return to Jerusalem was under Omar. And in fact, there's a great uh, book by an Israeli professor called Moshe Gil. It's called The History of Palestine, 634 to 1099. So this is the period from the Islamic conquest until the Crusades, so the period under Islamic uh, rule. And it describes in details how the uh, Muslims were the ones who brought the Jews back. Until then, the Jews were only able to go to Gaza. Uh, that was as far as they could go. The Jews from outside of Palestine would go to Gaza and pray to the temple from Gaza because that was as close as they could go. If they went any further, closer to that, the Romans would uh, kill them. and if, uh, Or from Tiberias in the north. If they were coming from the north, they'd go to Tiberias and they'd pray toward the temple in the south. Then Omar came in with an Arab Jew who had converted to Islam, but who was familiar with uh, the Judaic importance of the temple. And they brought in people who were Jewish from the surrounding areas, and they discovered where the temple was. They cleaned it because the Byzantines had turned it into a trash heap. They turned it into the garbage dump deliberately because they didn't want it to remain uh, a holy site. But the Muslims cleaned it, renovated it, and allowed the uh, Jews to go back to pray there. And since then, there has been continuous presence of Jews in the land. So in the mind of the average um, American uh, Zionist propaganda consumer, this is a game of cat and mouse. It's almost like a Tom and Jerry cartoon where it's, you know, the, the Muslims took it and then the Jews took it and then the Muslims took it and then the Jews took it. It's not like that. It absolutely is not. Um, there were all these people who were there up until 2000, and then the Jews were eradicated by the Romans, not by the Muslims. And then it was the Muslims who returned, uh, who, who kicked out the Romans, and the Muslims were the ones who allowed the Jews back into Jerusalem. And since then, they had coexisted, Muslims, Christians, and uh, Jews in that land. And I think the important point, which, as you mentioned, Ben-Gurion mentions, is that the local Palestinian population of today, people like me, are most likely descended from the ancient Jewish population that was existing there, not just the Jews, but also the Canaanites. And just, the, well, the Jews themselves were part of the Canaanites. But so the people who lived in that land 
more or less have stayed in that land and they've converted to islam many of them many of them converted to christianity uh, when christianity came about but uh, genetics have not shifted significantly according to sand and maybe you can uh, tell me whether you agree with this or not the, once the muslims came to uh palestine one inducement they uh, offer to people who would convert is uh, freedom from taxes and so sand says a lot of people who might have been jewish became christian maybe or didn't become christian you know went over to uh just to save the money and went over and became uh, Muslims. So there, you know, that's one possibility. Another thing Sam points out very emphatically is the Romans in, we're talking about the year 70 now, right? 70 of the common era. The Romans did not exile or expel. You, you said from Jerusalem, that's fine, but they did not ex wholesale exile all the Judeans, all the Jews from uh, Palestine or from, from Judea. There's no, in fact, he says there's no book. There's not a single serious historical work on this. There are no Roman uh, records that have ever been found, and the Romans kept records. These great empires always kept records of things. There's, and that's not what the Romans did normally. They might have, uh, they might have shipped out the uh, the leaders of the revolt because you want to get rid of the revolutionaries. That's just something politicians do, the troublemakers, but they needed the peasants, the farmers, the taxpayers. They didn't carry everybody out. They didn't even have the means to carry everybody out. And so there was no dispersion. The, the general story is they got kicked out of Rome, they got kicked out of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Judea or Israel, and now you get the wandering Jews scattering everywhere, and that's where you get the Ashkenazi Jews. And Sand is present, presenting a, con a contrary uh, a theory that they didn't get kicked out, but he still has to answer the question, where all the Ashkenazi Jews come from? And there have been a lot of conversions, which he documents over, over many years. Ju there was a time when Judaism was a proselytizing religion, certainly before uh, Christianity became really big and became the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. There were many conversions in like Yemen, the Yemen area, the Iraq area, and other places, northern Africa. And then in the 8th century, one possible theory may not be absolute proof of this, of course, is the uh, the the uh, uh, kingdom of Khazaria between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, where the king becomes decides to become Jewish because he's caught between the Mo Muslim on one side and the Byzantine on the other side. He says, OK, I don't want to offend either one. We'll be Jewish. And then, of course, in a couple centuries later, like the 11th century, they get driven out by the Mongols or whoever. And they end up moving east, moving west, and that's where you get this big population explosion of Jews in Europe, further west. I mean, that's a that's a coherent theory, and there, there's been a lot written about it. Right in the 1970s, Arthur Kessler wrote a book called "The Thirteen Tribe," which was about Khazaria. Most Ashkenazi Jews may not even be able to trace genetic roots back to back to the so-called Promised Land. Uh, but I agree with you; it's it's not it's yeah. not relevant anyway. Yeah, and I agree it's not relevant anyway, although I think Shlomo Sands takes it a little too far okay. because I think uh, modern uh, genetic analysis, DNA analysis, it, we're, we're, we keep getting more and more samples and we keep getting more and more uh, old bodies dug up and they do genetic analysis of these old bodies. And it does seem like for the Ashkenazi population, there is a link. They do descend, or they do have some uh, origin from that land. So it does seem that this idea that the Khazarians had just 
converted to Judaism and had no relation to the Jews of Palestine. It seems like it is a little bit exaggerated. They still carry some of the genetic material of the original inhabitants of Palestine. And also, I think the other thing that uh, might undermine Shlomo Sanz's thesis is that, well, the, the um, Jews of the Orient, the Jews of the uh, Iraqi Jews, the Yemeni Jews, Egyptian Jews, they seem to have even more of that. So, yeah, they did not, you know, the Jews that did not descend from the Ashkenazi, Khazarian uh, uh, origin, they seem to have a lot of DNA material from the Jews of Palestine in uh, the era of the uh, before the Roman conquest. So it does seem like there is that link, but it does look like you know the average Palestinian, particularly Palestinian Christians, because Palestinian Christians did not intermarry with the Muslims uh, and Muslim Arabs. So there's some. So if you look at the average DNA of the Palestinians, you see that the Christians are the ones that are the, the Christian Palestinians are the ones that are the closest to the original Canaanites. The Muslim Palestinians, they do have some European ancestry. They do, well, they, they have some Arab ancestry primarily. That's They're similar to the Christians. They have the local DNA, but they also have a little bit of Arab DNA. They have a little bit of African DNA, and they have a little bit of European DNA. The Arab DNA is from the Muslim conquest because some Arabs did come. It wasn't a wholesale population transfer, but there was some population or migration at that time. And if you became a Muslim in Palestine, you intermarried with the Arabs. And so the Arab DNA is in the population. So there were some Africans who also came in and some Europeans who came in through all kinds of uh, historical uh, situations, some slaves and some conquerors and some crusaders. So you see this kind of intermixing, whereas the Christians didn't marry and intermix with these populations, so they kept that DNA. So if you were gonna be going by uh, racial <laughs> theories, if you wanted to follow the Walter Block insane theory of uh, no, my people were here, Everybody has to leave but the Palestinian Christians. They get to keep the land because they are the ones that are the pure read. But this is, of course, insane. As, as the Jewish anti-Zionists, and there's still Jewish anti-Zionists around today, there's the American Council for Judaism, which is an old group set up in the, in the 40s to oppose the formation of the state of Israel. And that's a reformed Jewish, rather. The Orthodox had their own reasons against it. Uh, but the reform used to say, you know, there's not a Jewish people. There's Jewish peoples of many ethnicities, of many, if you want to call them races, of you know skin tones, of uh, languages. There's there's not a single single Jewish people, and they may have you know religious beliefs and practices in common, but nothing else. They don't even speak a common you know a common language. They didn't speak the same language. If Hebrew is the language of Israel, it's not the Jewish language. Most most uh, Jews around the world don't speak Hebrew. They don't speak Yiddish either. Yiddish is from Eastern Europe, particular time and place. So, uh, you know, there, there's all this point. It's it's a the, the reform insists Judaism is a religious community. It's a it's a religion, and many communities around the world practice and believe in that religion. But to say there's like one community or one group, and and especially to harden it into a biological group, a genetic group, uh, makes no sense. And but the Israelis are pushed to do that because num number one they want to they want to be at least they have been up until recently wanted to be secular because they they didn't make it a theocratic state when they called it a Jewish state that didn't mean a theocracy because 
the founders were secular for one thing. Herzl had a Christmas tree. You know, uh, Ben Gurion was not was not a, a believer. So now they're becoming more religious in recent years. So that changes. But so it wasn't Jewish in that sense. So what sense is there? They're driven toward a genetic explanation because if you say, well, we don't mean Jewish in the sense of you don't even have to believe in God, right? Look, my mother was Jewish. I don't believe in God. I could become a citizen tomorrow, right? I get on a plane and become a citizen and have all the privileges of uh, Jewish, not just citizenship, but Jewish nationality. It's nationality that counts. You could have my grandfather's land. Yeah. So you can't do that, but I can do it. And and I'm not even believe. I'm not a believer. I don't do anything. I don't keep. I have a Jewish mother. That's it. That's genetic. Yeah. And and yet the gen, you know, the genetic kind of falls apart. So it's a mess. It's a real mess. And um, it doesn't. You know, that genie's out of the bottle. It can't be put back in. We have to now deal with terrible things that are going on. And I wish I had an answer to that, but I don't. So I take refuge in history. Yeah. Where I'm safer. The truth is very, very important on any issue, and it's uh, it's it's always tempting when things are uh, getting ugly, particularly in times like now. It's always tempting to just go along with what's going on and just accept what is being imposed on the world in fiat, essentially, which is look, this is the reality, this is the guns. But I think the truth still matters, and I think the truth is essential. And um, the truth of the matter is. If you understand um, property rights, I think you get a very good understanding of why this is such a massive conflict and what the problem is. And the problem ultimately comes to the fact of the abuse of property rights. That's that's what it really is. So in 1947, anybody could own land in Palestine, and it didn't matter what your religion was. And then in 1948, uh, the Zionist movement ethnically cleansed Palestinians who were not Jewish, kicked them out of their homes simply for not being Jews. And they had an astonishingly powerful military at that time, which was funded and armed by rich Europeans and by Soviets and leftists and the Czechoslovaks and the Soviet uh, military. So they had a lot of weapons, they had a lot of arms, whereas the Palestinian population were practically disarmed because in 1936 and 1939, the British uh, regime had disarmed the Palestinians and left them essentially helpless and defenseless. And this for me, is the origin. If you're really wondering why this is the case, it's not because of anti-Semitism. It's not because Palestinians decided coincidentally and conveniently enough to start hating Jews in 1948 after centuries of having lived with Jews in Palestine. It's because in 1948, the property rights of Palestinians were violated. This is what it comes down to. So 90% of the land of Palestine was owned by people who weren't Jewish, the majority of them lost their land in 1948, and they were left with nothing but the land that was remaining in the West Bank in Gaza, which was then taken over in 1967. And then settlements took over most of the land in the West Bank, or well, not most of the land, but it's taken up massive portions of the land in West Bank. And since then, Israel has very systematically gone about dispossessing Palestinians. This is the thing that you don't hear about if you get the uh, Zionist idiotic propaganda version of the conflict in uh, American media, which is that it's it's been very systematic from 1947. It's always operated on this, the one slogan, which is more land, fewer Arabs. And so this was what drove the ethnic cleansing in 1947 and 48. 
And this was what drove the policies of the Israeli occupation from 1967 onwards, particularly in the West Bank, wherein they've destroyed, uh, you know, the Israeli Committee on Housing Against Housing Demolitions has calculated that I think it's around 140,000 houses, 140,000 Palestinian houses have been destroyed by Israel. And that's not counting the recent Gaza war, which has destroyed hundreds of thousands of houses uh, in the last three months. But even before that, we'd already been up at 140,000 houses destroyed. And these were destroyed sometimes with vague um, excuses, sometimes just through dispossession. Um, we're going to take this land and we're going to build on it and we're going to kick you out and your family out and we're going to take it away. This happened in 1948 land. This happened to villages in Palestine, Christian and Muslim villages that had been destroyed and depopulated and whose people are not allowed to go back to it because the land was taken over by the Israel Land Authority. And it happens in 1967. That's how settlements get built. Um, Palestinians land gets confiscated for roads for infrastructure and for settlements and then it's 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 a it's a very very perverse uh, cycle wherein well we need to build a road here so that we can connect to that settlement and then well we need to have um cell phone tower on this road so that the settlers driving on this road can get cell phone reception so we need to build a cell phone tower well, now that we have a cell phone tower, we need a house for somebody to take care of the tower. And then that grows into a community and they keep confiscating more and more land for the road and then for the settlement. And then the settlement needs more roads, so they keep confiscating more and more land. And that's how we end up with almost a million Jewish settlers in the West Bank today in land that had belonged to Palestinians. Yeah. I want to take it back a little bit earlier uh, and not to ancient time because this is this is not really an ancient conflict. I mean, you and I agree on that. It, we can, there's interesting history back then, and you went through a lot of it, but this is not an old conflict. This is, you know, a little more than 100 years old, so it's not that old in the scheme of things. If you go back to the uh, the 19, early 19, earlier 19th century, uh, uh, or sorry, 20th century, not talking about the 19th century, you could go back there too, but, but um, land was being purchased from absentee landlords, feudal landlords that were had been given tracts of land by the by the Turks when the Turks still ruled the area, and also there was some registry of of individual property was registered with uh, bigger landowners as a way to maybe uh, making the taxes easier on the little landowner, right? Because the big the big guy had connections, and they were often living uh, outside of Palestine altogether. They they lived in Beirut or other places. You had feudal landlords. And so land was being, per some land was being purchased among the six or 7% you talked about was being purchased from big landlords outside of the country. But they, that land was being, had been worked for generations and also lived on for generations by Palestinian Arab families. And I say Palestinian Arab because in those days the Jews were called Palestinian Jews, right? The Jerusalem Post was called the Palestine Post. So there actually, you had to be, you had to distinguish if you wanted to make that distinction. So the Arabs who had lived and worked there, the Palestinians who had lived and worked in those lands for, you know, their families had for generations got kicked off because there was a boycott of non-Jewish labor. It was, the land was being redeemed. That's what the Zionists used to say. It was Jewish land now coming back into Jewish possession and we should only employ Jews. So people who had lived, you know, who's, who, who worked there, who lived there, their fathers did, their grandfathers did, et cetera, back to a thousand years maybe, are suddenly kicked off and can't even 
be hired there. That created a lot of resentment. So you do get violence of Arab Palestinians against Jews in the 20s and 30s. But and I, and I don't want to defend. You know, I would never defend indiscriminate violence. But it was at least understandable, not excusable, but understandable because of what the change that was going on at the hands of the the you know the Zionist movement, which was an organized movement to create a state in as much of that land as possible, all of it preferably of Palestine, but as much as possible. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of an overemphasis on this part of the conflict on the part of uh, Zionists because it's a better story than the idea that they stole the majority of the land. But the reality is, even with all of these uh, absentee landlords and the people who were, I mean, it's it's important to remember at that point, uh, people had lived in Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria, and uh, Egypt interchangeably. The families would be extended uh, across these borders. These borders didn't exist. It was perfectly natural and normal for a family to be based in Beirut and Jerusalem and Diyafa and to have land in Lebanon and in Palestine and in Syria. And so uh, it's, it's perfectly normal that there'd be absentee landlords because there were no borders before these uh, landlords. But uh, still, even with all of these controversies around these particular plots of land where the uh, tenants of the land were practically landowners, but they were legally tenants. And then when the owners sold the land, the Zionists kicked out the Palestinians who were in the land. Still, even if you concede all of that land belongs legitimately to Zionists and the Palestinians have no claim to that land, that's all. that all adds up to 10% of the land. There's still 90% of the land that's not owned by the Zionist movement. And since then, another very important point to keep in mind here is that this isn't just ancient history because, all right, well, you know, just get over it. There's been a lot of people who lost a lot of land in a lot of places all throughout history. Just get over it. Um, you know, you look at the European history, you see many examples of countries and people who had lost land. But in this situation, the difference was that even for the Palestinians who remained in Palestine, who remained under Israeli rule, they cannot go back to their own land in uh, Israel and they cannot buy it. And so there are a lot of villages that are just destroyed and the population lives in refugee camps or in small other towns or in the cities also within Israel proper, 1948 territory, and they can't buy back their land. They can't move to their land. They can't buy it back because the land's been all taken over by the Israel Land Authority. This is the key issue that continues to this day and why this isn't just historical grievances and people refusing to get over things. Because if Palestinians had the ability to just purchase that land back, and forget about getting it for free. If they could just have the ability to purchase it back and then move into it, then that would take away a big part of the grievances that they have. It would essentially diffuse the majority of the problems. But the problem is that they can't own it. The land, almost 90% of Israeli land, out uh, meaning 1948 land, the area that was occupied in 1948, 90% of that land is owned by the Israeli Land Authority. And it is not available for sale for anybody. Nobody can go buy it from the Israel Land Authority. The Israel Land Authority just acquires land through conquest, through theft, through purchases, whatever it is. They acquire land and they just keep it. They hodl <laughs> like Bitcoiners. They just keep the land. They don't ever sell it. They don't uh, sell it to anybody. And they allocate it to Jews who come from anywhere in the world. So anybody from anywhere can claim to be a Jew and could get that land. You could be Argentinian. 
never having set foot in Palestine and no genetic link to Palestine, even going back to 2000 years. And if you just claim to be Jewish, you could go back to Palestine, you could go, not back, you could go to Palestine and you would get, you could be able to lease some of that land from the Israel Land Authority, land that was owned by Palestinians. This is what keeps the conflict running. As a libertarian, this is how I understand it. And it's why it's not something that I, I think can just be forgotten because Look, there are still 7 million Palestinians under Israeli rule, whether it's in Palestine proper, 1948, or in West Bank or in Gaza. And these people continue to be unable to own land and have property rights in their land because Israel has a communist system of land ownership. And that's something that I brought up in the discussion with Walter Block. And I asked him, well, you know, would you support the privatization of land? in Palestine and uh, being a communist uh, socialist statist, of course, Walter Block, uh, you know, he's, uh, he pretends to be a libertarian on all kinds of things like roads and so on. But when it came to this, no, he does not support the privatization of that land for him. Uh, he wants the state agency to continue to own it because he is a hypocrite. Well, because the dilemma is if it's going to be a Jewish state, unless it has to have no meaning, whatever, there's going to have, they're going to have to be government interventions or through a, a quasi-government organization, like as you point out, the uh, Land Authority, to uh, engineer the society. So Palestinians, again, living inside the 48 borders, have a terrible time, and maybe it's impossible to get permits for expanding homes, to building new homes, to building new villages. There hasn't been a new village, I don't think, allowed by the – but it's got to be – you need permits. And when they try to, when they build without permits illegally, they get demolished. That's not just happening on the West Bank. That happens within what's called the Green Line, right? The, the nineteen forty nine armistice lines. Uh, is it otherwise? What does it mean to be a Jewish state? If they just wanted to say, "Look, we're going to be a totally libertarian area," we're going to call it a Jewish state, but otherwise, it's totally libertarian. Well, we might quibble over the title, but it wouldn't be infecting, affecting people's rights, right? That have the, like you say, right to own land and to engage in all kinds of peaceful uh, transactions. We could fight about what they call it. That's kind of very secondary. No one would be dying. But that's not what it means. It's, it's, it's what B'Tselem, which is the big human rights organization uh, in Israel, but also uh, 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 Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, called Jewish supremacy. It's a Jewish supremacist state. Also, they also call it an apartheid state. You know, the problem is, and there's a very nice quote from Ilan Pape, who's a, uh, you know, Israeli, Jewish Israeli, maybe secular, but Jewish Israeli historian, teach, has taught in uh, England now for a long time. But I, I watched a, a, a documentary about the village of Tantura, which was a massacre of uh, Palestinians uh, in a, a coastal uh, village after the Declaration of Independence. So, uh, you know, after May of uh, 15th, uh, 1948, not long after, I think late May. And Pape says, you know, there's a problem with the Zionist project. European Jews had a terrible time in many, in many uh, periods and in many places. It wasn't uniform throughout Europe. There were better parts of Europe and worse parts of Europe, better times, worse times, but a terrible time. Pogroms, not even counting the Nazis before the Nazis, but then the Nazis. So he says, so the view was we need a safe haven. But as, uh, as, as uh, Pape puts it, you can't create a safe haven by creating a catastrophe for other people. That's the bottom line. 
Now, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer was back, you know, decades ago. If I were around and people asked me, and I certainly don't have a, you know, an idea today of what ought to happen to bring an end to all the bloodshed and, and, the, and the violation of rights. But that's something that has to be grappled with. People who did not commit the crimes of Europe were made to pay the price for them. And that doesn't seem right to me. And when back, you know, in the early days when people said it's a land without a people for a people without a land, which I think actually that phrase was originated by British uh, Christians, rabbis went and visited and cabled back. It's a, like uh, to Herzl, you're right, it's a, it's a beautiful bride, but she's married. I mean, they immediately, immediately said it's not a people. It's not a land without a people. I mean, that, that was quashed the moment it came out of somebody's mouth. And so, yes, you know, you, you get the story out, and I give you great credit for getting the story out, the right story. Yeah, this is a famous phrase. The bride is beautiful, but she is married to another man. <laughs> uh, there's a Wikipedia page for it. It's a phrase used to refer to a fundamental problem confronting Zionist ambitions to found a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The phrase is of unknown or origin, apparently they say here in no, but it is it is known origin. I think it was as you mentioned, it was an it was a bunch of rabbis who mentioned it. That's the way I heard it, yes. Yeah. As eighteen nineties fact finding message in University of Oxford, um Avi Schleim's The Iron Wall. Yeah, Schleim's very good. Yeah, Schleim's book The Iron Wall. You know, when Herzl wanted to run his first uh, Zionist Congress in 18, it would have been in 1897, it was scheduled for Munich. But of course, anybody who knows the history knows it wasn't held in Munich, it was held in Basel. Why is that? The rabbis wouldn't permit it to be in Munich. Yes. I don't know, they might have even called in the city authorities. I don't know if they did that or not. Yep. That would have been unmilitarian, but leave that aside. They, uh, they said, no, we don't want this here. We don't believe this. This is a- It was in 1904 though. There's a secular group. It's, a, it's, a, it's not- real Judaism, and stay out of our town. So they, they went to Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, and, and, and when it happened, there was an enormous amount of uh, uh, denunciation of the Zionist movement from most Jewish uh, organizations around the world. American Jews and European Jews and Palestinian Jews had opposed this idea because we don't want this. And it's, it's very well uh, worth noting that Herzl and the initial Zionists were anything but religious. In fact, Zionism was Herzl's plan B. You know, I, I was reading, uh, yes. I read Herzl's diaries a long time ago when I was in college, and his plan A was mass conversion. He wanted to convince the rabbis to convince the Jewish right. people to just convert to Christianity. And my first exposure to real anti-Semitism was from reading Herzl. I remember it because he just, he was a very, very serious anti-Semite. He went along with the idea that maybe we could become Christians. And then he comes to the conclusion that no, we can never be Christians. We will never fit in with the Europeans and we just have to leave. Yeah. We are cursed to not be part of those people. And he says, he says in this political effort now to form the new state, the Jewish state, as he called it, the anti-Semites will be our best friend. He says that in his diary that's been published uh, for a long time. He appealed to the uh, you know, European leaders saying, we agree, especially the anti-Semites, we agree with you. We, will we are foreigners. We will never be at home here. I mean, he fed anti-Semitism. 
who knows what would have happened later in the century had you had not decades, uh, l- later in the 20th century, if you had not decades of the Zionist leaders saying, we don't belong here. Help us get out of here. And I can imagine an anti-Semite saying, yeah, okay, I'm a Zionist. I'll help you pack your bags. Yeah, and in fact, that was one of the main motivations for the British support for the Zionist movement because they saw all these uh, uh, Eastern European Jews being expelled out of Eastern Europe, leaving Eastern Europe, and they were worried that they would come to Britain and they were very anti-Semitic <laughs> and they did not want them to Britain. So Pal- they do not want them to come to Britain, so Palestine was a good solution for them. And that's why they supported the Zionist project. Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, the anti-Semitism and Zionism are two faces of the same coin. Um, for many anti-Semites in European countries, there is a Jewish problem, and the answer to it is Palestine. The answer to it is Zionism. Right, and, I, and the reason I read the Pape quote is because, look, there, there was a problem that, that Jews needed to solve one way or another, come to the United States. There's already a reform movement here that said, we do not regard ourselves as diaspora, we love, uh, you know, America is our Palestine. That's what they used to say. Uh, this is our Jerusalem. Uh, we don't, we don't look to uh, re reform, reconstitute the ancient kingdom and live under the, you know, the, the laws of Aaron. They rejected all of that. This is the reform movement. It's in their like 1885 declaration. I think it's the Cincinnati declaration. They broke, they broke, they said that's, that's from 2000 years ago. That's got nothing to do with today. They tried to convince, uh, Jews not to become Zionists. And, uh, you know, the way Zionism really uh, prospered was, you know, they actually should be thankful to the Nazis because with the Nazis, horrible, obviously one of the most horrible chapters in humanist, they changed the myth, they changed the mission, right? It became now a refugee mission, a place, at least that's how it was sold, a place for the displaced persons. But before the Nazis, that's, that's not what it was about. They wanted all Jews, all Jews, no matter how well off they were in America or anywhere else, to come to to come to the new state of Israel. It was an ingathering of exiles. They were able to repackage it because of the horrors of the of the Nazis. And but and and the, and the Zionist movement during the during the war and during the thirties was disgraceful because they they didn't like any program. That, that included a place for Jews to go in escaping Europe other than Palestine. Ben-Gurion and those people were not interested in the plan to get Jews to America, Australia, Canada, England, because that would take the pressure off the political movement, uh, the Zionist political movement, if, they, if Jews had other place to go, other places to go. And so they were against that stuff. I mean, that sounds pretty terrible. It seems like the first priority would be Rescue them from Europe. I don't care where they go. Get them out of Europe because of Hitler. Instead, it's no, only get them out of Europe if they have that one place. You know, Ben-Gurion says if it was a choice between getting all of the the, uh, Jewish children of Europe to uh, England or half of them to Palestine, I would not hesitate to take the second option. Yes. That's a horrible thing. Yes. That's a horrible thing. How come job one wasn't? getting them to a safe place, even if its name wasn't Palestine. 
Yes, I think this is this is absolutely a, a staggering uh, reality of Zionism that most people don't realize today. Yitzhak Gruenbaum, another founding father of Israel, had once said, "One cow, one Jewish-owned cow in Palestine, is yeah. worth more than all the Jews of Poland." Uh, when he was uh, w- during the Holocaust, you know, when when that was the priority, so they they could have worked on trying to s- make it easy for Jews to leave Europe to go to these places, but no, they wanted to make it difficult for them to go to the U.S. and to Australia and Canada in order for them to go to Israel, and so they were lobbying these governments to try and prevent them from going there, so that they would put pressure on Britain to let them go to Palestine so that they could live there. And it's um, and of course, most people don't know this, but there's something called the Havra Agreement, wherein the Zionist movement and Nazi Germany agreed to, agreed to the fact that they have a very similar interest. And uh, look, you don't want Jews in Europe. We don't want Jews in Europe either. So let's get the Jews out of Germany and send them to Palestine. And so um, there's a lot of, you know, today anybody who has any uh, criticism of anything related to Israel is immediately branded a Nazi. Um, exactly. But I, Eichmann was assigned to read the Jewish state by his boss, Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, and he visited Palestine. And, and in the early stage before the war, getting people out, expelling them was what was being done. That was the strategy to get rid of them before the Nazi plans were fully, Hitler's plans were fully formulated. You know, he didn't begin day one knowing exactly what he wanted to do. And Eichmann was actually, I'm not making Eichmann out to be a good guy by any standard. He's a terrible man. Uh, but that was the strategy at first. That all, you know, of course, that all changed. So uh, there was a chance to get people out. There was foot dragging when it came to any plan that involved, even when they had the Evian conference in France, I'm not sure what year, I forget what year that happens, where the you know Western nations have a conference to talk about, okay, will any of these countries take, take Jews in? It's before the war, I guess. Take Jews in. I think it's before the war. And the Dominican Republic agrees to take 150,000. I don't think anyone else actually made any commitments. And there was pressure on the Dominican Republic to not do it because it would hurt fundraising for Palestine if there was another place to go. It would, it would hurt the whole effort. I mean, that's that's disgraceful. I mean, that's like a it's like a chapter that you know people know about, but nobody wants to talk about. At least older people know about it. Young people don't because they've never heard. Yes, and of course, you know, uh, while we're at Zionist <laughs> Zionist plans for uh, migration of Jews to Palestine. There was also the uh, sinking of the uh, Struma, uh, MV Struma, the disaster where the ship that was carrying Jewish refugees. And uh, it seems like the, it was the Haganah who sabotaged it in order to sink it. Or maybe I'm mistaken. I'm, I'm getting it mixed up with something else. But there was a ship that was sunk by the Zionists because the British were not letting the Jews uh, were trying to limit Jewish migration at that point. And so the Zionists sunk a boat uh, in order to put the pressure on the, um, I'm not sure what the name of the boat is. Um, should have researched this earlier, but it, uh, it hasn't occurred to me. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, we see this pattern of with the Zionist movement, that what matters is the success of Zionism, not the well-being of the Jews. And... Um, Jews are, um, it's, it's okay to sacrifice Jews in order if it makes uh, Zionism succeed. And also, why did Palestinian Arabs 
pay the price for what some evil Europeans did. I mean, there, there's the big question that just hangs there, just hangs there in the air, begging for an answer. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Netanyahu tried to come up with an answer. Well, the Mufti gave the idea of the Holocaust to Hitler. Remember, he tried that and immediately got laughed out of the room. There was no historical evidence of that. And the Mufti wasn't necessarily representative of the Palestinians anyway. Yeah. I think he was put into So that's the question. That's the question. I mean, like I said, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I don't, not by a long shot. But why have Palestinian, Arab, landowners, farmers, peasants, businessmen, they were all types of people, businessmen, publishers, there was an intelligentsia. Why did they get punished? It was like a ritual punishment, right, for crimes that they did not commit. And so the Europeans felt better by saying, we'll give Palestine to the Zionists. We'll feel better that way. We'll pat ourselves on the back, realizing they're not paying the price. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. And I think, I mean, at a very basic level, this is almost uh, child, uh, this is almost childish, the, the, the degree of um, sociopathic carelessness about the fate of Palestinians in a sense of, well, look, you know, it wasn't your fault, but bad things happened to us. And I think, I mean, if you had a child that behaved in this way, then, you know, um, well, somebody stole my bike, so I'm just going to go and steal somebody else's bike. And then if they can complain, I'm just going to kill them because how dare you complain to me that I stole your bike when my bike was stolen, you know? If you have a child like this, I mean, you should... You should raise them very differently. You've done, done a very terrible way. You, you've raised them very terribly. That's not how um, ethics works. Uh, people are not responsible for the actions of others, and it takes an incredible amount of self-centered and uh, self-indulgence and lack of self-control, lack of self-awareness to assume that the world needs to function in this way. You know, somebody took my bike, so somebody has to give me a bike. And I don't care if that means that I'm going to end up being a criminal like the guy who took my bike. I'm going to take somebody else's bike. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to do it because somebody took my bike. And it's, it's that level of morality because people just fail to understand uh, what it is that Palestinians should be doing in this situation. I mean, it's just, it's if you want to drive a Zionist mad, just asking that question, well, what would you have done if you were a Palestinian? And I mean, the honest ones, Yehud Barak once answered that question honestly. I mean, it's just, uh, he was, a journalist asked him that. Ben-Gurion did. Ben-Gurion told Nahum Goldman, who was president of the World Zionist Organization uh, early on, and who wrote his memoirs, he quotes Ben-Gurion saying, if I were an Arab, I wouldn't negotiate with us either. We stole their country. That's verbatim. Yes. In Nahum Goldman. And look it up in his mm-hmm. memoirs. 1962, I think they were published. And Moshe Dayan also said something very similar. He said, look, that's, uh, yeah. they, yes, there's been Hitler and there's been a Holocaust, but that's not the fault of the Arabs. All they can see is that we took their land and they're right. So we can't expect them to make peace with us. And of course, you would expect that this would be the kind of moment of awareness. Look, we shouldn't take other people's bikes just because somebody took our bike. But instead, it's this moment of belligerence of, look, we need to keep fighting them because they're right. They're, they're going to keep coming after us. So we yeah. need to keep fighting them. Somebody recently asked it to Ehud Barak and Ehud Barak said, yeah, if I was born a Palestinian, I'd join the resistance. 
But well, and over in, in, in the 2000, uh, remember the Camp David 2000, the famous Camp David stuff, uh, uh, Ben Ami, the foreign minister, says later on after that, I wouldn't have accepted that deal if I was a Palestinian. He was the foreign minister. He was there at the uh, negotiations. Yeah. And and yet that gets blamed on Arafat. Who, you know, I'm not a particular fan of Arafat, but that's been a raw deal. You know, if you go back over history again, to return to like this broad sweep of history, on the whole, Jewish people had a better time living side by side with Muslims, and you got into this too, than with Christians. I mean, look at uh, Spain and, and the, the glory, the glory of, that, of, uh, of Moorish Spain, where Jews and, and, and Muslims live side by side. They, they may have been totally legally equal, uh, so I'm not saying it was perfect, but it was a, it's a, everybody agrees that was a golden time when uh, there was great advances in science and philosophy and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Sloma Sand says that uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Judeans or the, the descent of the Jews in Palestine welcomed when the Arabs came because they were having a very tough time with the Christians. The, you know, the Muslims weren't calling Jews the, the killers of the Messiah. The Christians were, and they were killing Jews for doing that. Muslims didn't do that. And he even says that Jews joined the the Muslim Arabs in conquering the parts of northern Africa, the, and the Berbers, and the, you know that they, they they were they saw them as their brethren, so they even fought side by side against the with you know what they saw as a common enemy. So it's a, it's a more much more complicated story than the news media gives you, and and, and the pundits for yeah. the most part. Well, I mean, it is it, it is in the interest of the Zionists to portray this as an intractable racial conflict that is going on forever, and that this land is just yo-yoing its way back and forth, and that look, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's only might, and there's only you you can have it now, and right. you can have it now, and now the Israelis have the power, so they get the land. It's not that. That's not the case. This conflicts origins really begin in the 1910s, in 1917 in particular. Before that, there was no issue. Before that, Jews had existed in Palestine. And to the extent that there was a Zionist movement before then, and the vast majority of Zionists were spiritual Zionists or cultural Zionists. It was an idea that you want to go back to Palestine. Maybe you visit Palestine. Maybe you settle in Palestine. But it was out of the question that we would establish a nation state, which was something extremely un-Jewish, very European idea, early 20th century, very fascist idea to build an ethno state. The idea that you would do that in Palestine for Jews was completely out of the question for most of the Jews at that time. And it was really the Balfour Declaration that made this a serious problem. And it was then that this became a conflict. So this isn't an ancient conflict. The cultural Zionists, and the, the name that comes to mind is like the leading cultural Zionist, it was a pen name, Ahad. Yep. He warned, and I published some of his uh, quotes yes. recently at the Libertarian Institute. He warned about this attitude toward to, uh, toward the Arabs in Palestine. He warned about this. This is before 1900, and then he does it into the early, you know, into the early 20th century. He's warning that political Zionism was mistreating and uh, the Arabs in Pal Palestinian Arabs. And not and disparaging them and treating them like they were these primitives who didn't know anything. It could be shoved aside and transferred, to use uh, uh, Herzl's words, right? Transfer. So there were people on the scene who were religiously Jewish, saying, "No, we can't do this. It's inconsistent. 
It's not a good idea in any on any grounds, but it's also inconsistent with their religious values, they said. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember reading your article on Ahad Am. I think this was a much more common sentiment amongst European Jewry back at that point than Zionism. But then political Zionism took over, and I think Nazism is a big part of that. And um, sure. I, I think also socialism is a big part of that. There's, there's a very strong socialist streak amongst Zionists wanted to could only see Zionism in a statist perspective. And yeah. I think this is the real catastrophe. The exactly. The that was the yeah. model. Collective living. You didn't even own anything. Why was it why was anybody attracted to that? Yeah, exactly. What well, this is this is I think in my mind, it's the leftism of the origins of Zionism that made it irreconcilable with the local population. Because you couldn't just be a cultural Zionist, you couldn't just go move into a land and accept the fact that the people from other religions are gonna be there. No, if you're if you've caught the socialist brain damage of we need a state to organize everything, if you think in terms of the state needs to own the land, the state needs to organize production, the state needs to do this, 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 and that, well, then of course the state is going to have to have the identity of the people. The state is going to have to impose the identity, and the state is going to have to rid, get rid of anybody who doesn't believe in the um, God that we believe in, in the same way that we believe in that God, because. That you know, it's the state. That's what the state does. It imposes things on people. It certainly does, and it has been doing it for a very long yeah. time. Uh, I wish you knew what the answer was. I, I I don't know even what to say. Not that anybody's hearing my voice over there, but I wouldn't know what to say to them. Either either anybody, either side. I mean, this can't go on. We could be getting rich instead of fighting. That's what I'd want to say. You guys could be getting wealthy, trading and producing. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of fighting and killing each other. Yeah, I think there was, I, I would say that, uh, you know, when the 1990s, at the kind of end of history era, when people had imagined that the world, how history had come to an end and democracy had triumphed, I think there was a, there was a period then when among Israeli society, there had been a kind of moderation of the worst elements of Zionism, of, of the most uh, exclusionary, exclusive supremacist elements of Zionism against the Palestinians, which really was envisioned um, by people like Rabin and Paris to some extent in the sense of, well, we can maybe give the Palestinians the West Bank in Gaza and then we'll be able to live in peace with them. And I don't believe that that was a workable solution because at that point, it, it was not workable because of the settlements. And I think for the kind of, um, you know, liberal, cosmopolitan um, Zionists who cared more about Israel proper, they would have probably been willing to accept, let's just get rid of West Bank and Gaza and not have settlers there and let the Palestinians have it. And I think a majority of Palestinians would have probably taken that in the 1990s and I think what derailed that was the extremist elements within the Zionist movement who continued to Im um, insist on settlements. I think settlements really were what derailed that. So, yeah, so when you look back, I mean, the obvious kind of um, moronic Zionist propaganda that the average American consumer of uh, Zionist uh, media um, gets is that the Israelis offered the Palestinians a state and the Palestinians didn't want it because they just wanted to destroy Israel. And that's why the Israelis had no choice but to continue to ex occupy the West Bank and Gaza. 
But of course, that misses the fact that since 1967, Israel has been expanding settlements in the West Banks, and now we have almost a million settlers. Ben-Gurion warned against all that. He was more pragmatic. Yeah. Because he saw the problem. If you're going to keep a, a lot of Palestinian Arabs under your domain, what are you going to do? And so I thought I think he favored after the 67 war. He was not prime minister, of course. He was retired. But he was in favor of not holding on to those lands. And then my, my view also is, and I think this is a pretty common view, is hardliners encourage hardliners on the other side. They beget and encourage hardliners on the other side. So when people say, but Hamas, that's kind of the argument, right? But Hamas, Hamas only arises in the late 80s after settlements are already going on and things are happening. And of course, encouragement of Israel, because they want Hamas as religious, the PLO and uh, Fatah are secular, and they wanted to divide the Palestinians by helping this uh, religious organization rise up. Which would some some Palestinians would go from one group to the other because they they were more religious minded. Which would then the whole strategy was to dilute, you know, divide and rule the Palestinians by not having a single entity that uh, the Palestinians would rally around. You had some with the PLO and some with the uh, with Hamas and Netanyahu. You know, it's an open secret now that Netanyahu was encouraging Hamas even as late. As Netanyahu's, the Netanyahu years. So the hardliners, you get the hardliners beget hardliners on the other side. And then they, they end up fostering each other because one side says, well, look at their hardliners. We need a harder line. And the other side says, look at those hardliners. We need a harder line. And so the reasonable people are driven out. Oh, you're unrealistic. You know, they're not going to go for your more moderate, realistic approach. And, and you can see how the, 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 the the fair more fair minded people are driven out, and you don't you don't even get start, the first steps toward some kind of settlement. Yeah, that was the point that I'm trying to get at. That in the 1990s there may have been a glimmer of hope in both camps that you know the Palestinians were willing to maybe accept something like the West Bank in Gaza because well you know 40 years 50 years of uh, Occupation and dispossession and refugee status and eternal victimhood is maybe enough. Maybe it's time for our kids to grow up in some semblance of normality. And maybe Israelis said, you know, we don't want to be having to serve in the military all the time and have to fight wars all the time. But the settlements completely derailed that. And in fact, if you look at the uh, extremists who really derailed it, I mean, the people who assassinated uh, Yitzhak Rabin, they are the ones who are in charge of the Israeli government today. They are the allies of Netanyahu. Netanyahu, Netanyahu was an extremist uh, under Rabin's term, but today he is almost a moderate compared to the not jobs that are in his uh, government, like people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. Ben Gvir himself... Uh, he'd, uh, you know, he 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 used to make death threats to Nathan, to uh, Rabin in the 1990s, and uh, this was the, the, there's a very strong current now in Israeli politics that descends from that current, which completely refused any kind of settlement and just wanted to take on more land. And so, it seems unfortunately that we're headed to this uh, conflict continuing to aggravate. And you know, Smotrich himself, he said. Uh, the Palestinian Authority is a liability for us because they make the world see that, look, the Palestinians are civil, 
secular. They want the nation state. They want to live in peace. Hamas is an asset for us because Hamas shows the world that they are monsters and we can't live with them and we have no choice but to expel them. And that's just two days ago he was saying, we need to make sure that in the after war scenario, there's only 100 to 200,000 Palestinians left in Gaza. Then that will make the after war scenario very uh, very favorable for us. We can move in and we can settle in it. So it's tempting to think that, I guess the, the, the kind of overall message that I'm trying to get at here is that there's a solution. There was an idea of maybe could have some kind of two-state coexistence in the 1990s. That's uh, gone. The settlements have completely destroyed any possibility of that happening. And now there, there's this kind of extremist Israeli element, uh, an idea of, well, Let's just kick them all out. And I think that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing in Gaza right now. The plan is to kick out the majority of people in Gaza. And then I think, you know, it's, it's very easy to imagine something like October 7 happening again in the West Bank, and then you kick out the Palestinians in the West Bank. But I think the dangerous thing here is that uh, I don't think uh, this is likely to work out. Um, well, maybe it does, but I mean, I think the, the dangerous part of it is that uh, – this kind of uh, once you've got it into this mentality wherein there is no respect for others people's property rights because of your insane zealotry around your religious beliefs wherein look it doesn't matter what those people think or own or their lives don't matter because this is our land and god gave it to us well they're not going to stop at gaza and the west bank they are going to continue to expand. They're going to create more refugees and then there's going to be problems and then they're going to use that as a problem, as, as a um, rationale for further expansion. You can already see this within the settlement movement, settlers movement. I mean, they talk about the land of Israel is not just the modern day state of Israel, Lebanon, parts of Syria, parts of Jordan, parts of Egypt, yeah. parts of Iraq even. I mean, why not? Uh, many people claim that it, the flag of Israel is uh, the Nile to the Euphrates. Those are the two. Well, the Bible says the Nile to the Euphrates in one of the places. Yeah, so uh, why would you expect? These are religious fanatics. Yeah. In fact, uh, Smotrich himself, uh, he's um, he, he's part of an organization. That there was a, he was giving a speech with a map of Israel that uh, included Jordan as well with Israel. So that these kind of expansionist ideas I don't think are going to stop with the West Bank and Gaza, unfortunately. So my very sad takeaway from this is that uh, we could either have property rights independent of ethnicity, religion, wherein any person can own land, and then we can have a free market, and then we can have property rights, and then we can have peaceful coexistence, and we can have a civilized uh, society. Or we're going to continue with this insane monstrous ideology of land is up for grabs and everything's up for conflict. And so if you define, if you, if you say that might is right, then you're going to just be inviting people to fight back. If your logic for, hey, I'm going to take your bike because I'm stronger than you, well, I'm just going to uh, you're just going to sign up for a lifetime of fighting over bikes, and this is the sad part about it. That I, that I just well, you yeah, you create en enemies. I mean, uh, Netanyahu a few days ago published an op-ed where he said, you know, three things have, may have to happen before all this will stop: uh, destroy Hamas, uh, demilitarize the uh, Gaza, and then here's the third one, which is impo It seems to me is impossible: 
de-radicalize all of Palestinian society, not just Gaza, but all. De-radicalize, that's a state of mind. What does that mean? The brainwashing, it sounds very Orwellian, or it sounds like uh, Clockwork Orange, the novel in the movie Clockwork Orange, where they tried to uh, you know, uh, wash something out of the guy's uh, psyche, but this is a whole society. That, that means it's, it, can't, it won't end because the, by their own goals can't be achieved. In fact, their own goal. That's the point. And the methods create new enemies, creates new radicals. It's a, it's a Hamas enlistment program to yeah, do but- this. The bombing, look at the bombing. Look at the video of the bombing. It looks like Dresden or it looks like Hiroshima after World War II. The building's all smashed. It's unbelievable, those scenes. That's creating new members of Hamas, or maybe they'll call themselves by a different name. And pop up a new organization will pop up, but that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, and I think uh, you know this. This is a it's very cynical, but it's a it's it's a great recipe for making sure that you continue to be able to um, dispossess people and take their land. So if you need to de-radicalize Palestinians, and what what how how do you even define that? There's always going to be a Palestinian who says something that you don't like. And therefore, you can continue to launch war. And I think this is really what it's meant there. And of course, the Americans who cheer on uh, this stuff are just uh, completely oblivious to what this means. It's for them, it's, yeah, you know, that we just need want to, if only Palestinians would want peace. Well, doesn't matter. Look at people in the West Bank. Um, it doesn't matter how much of a peacenik you are. Your land is still getting stolen. And it's still getting given to settlers from Brooklyn who come in and just get this as an extra house given to them by the Israeli land authority because you get kicked out because you have the wrong religion. So as long as there's uh, somebody who thinks something that Netanyahu doesn't like, then they have carte blanche take out. Well, don't get caught carrying a copy of Man, Economy, and State. You'll be accused of being radicalized by reading Murray Rothbard. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He was a flaming anti-Zionist, wasn't he? Well, but I'm talking about even his economics are radical. Free market, radical economics. That's right. Or your book. That makes you a radical. If you, if you read your, your book on economics, that make you a radical. It has nothing to do with Zionism, or, but it has to do with property. Exactly. Well, this is, this, this is the real <laughs> de-radicalization that needs to happen, if you ask me. People need to de-radicalize from the idea that land and property can be assigned based on 2,000-year-old stories or based on religious texts. No, property rights are individual. And if you're willing to accept other people have property yeah. right on a land, regardless of their God, regardless of their religion, regardless of what they believe, if you're able to accept their property rights, then you're able to live in peace. And this is this is kind of the conclusion of my uh, book on economics, Principles of Economics. It's a, it's a long book, uh, but it's all about property rights, and it explains all of the capitalist system and how the capitalist system functions, and it's... All, and it explains why it all rests on property rights. So if you have a society that accepts property rights, that accepts individuals have the right to their property, you have peace and then you can have civilization. If you don't, you are just going to be signing up for a lifetime of conflict, unfortunately, and this is what we have. And it's depressing to see this. It's uh, devastating. I, mean, I, I, I grew up there. I have family there. And I just continue to see this. And it's extremely, extremely disheartening and depressing. Well, we do have some of the audience here. Does anybody here have a question? Aya Ahmed had mentioned that it was the Patriot disaster was the sinking on 25 November by the Jewish paramilitary organization Haganah of a French-built ocean liner. 
in the port of Haifa, killing 267 people and injuring 172. Yes, that was the Patria disaster. That was the one, not the one that I mentioned earlier. Thank you, Ahmed, for mentioning that. What, what year was that? 1940. Hmm. Okay. Maska's asking, is the two-state solution viable? Why or why not? What do you think, Sheldon? Well, I think you've already answered that. The, there are, what, 700,000 settlers now or 500,000 to 700,000? No, more than 800, close to a million. So, and they expand them and build new ones, and they have this wall that snakes through a lot of it, which separates Palestinians' homes from uh, farm, their farmland, and a very big inconvenient thing. They didn't just build that wall on the old border between the West Bank and, uh, and uh, the 1948-49 Israel. They, it's, in parts of it, it snakes through the West Bank and, and separates people, and there were Jewish-only roads. Uh, that uh, you know the Arabs can't use. Uh, so I don't see how you could do that. First of all, I think there'd be a civil war if Netanyahu or, or another prime minister said, uh, "Okay, all you uh, settlers, you got you know you got to move out, move out. You get you know thirty days to get out. We're going to set up a second state." I, I think there'd be a civil war. So uh, so I don't I don't see how that's going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, the the one state. And you know this gets to the current controversy about the you know is is the fro- is the slogan from the river to the sea an anti-Semitic slogan? Well, if it's anti-Semitic, then Likud is anti-Semitic because they say there'll be Jewish there should be Jewish sovereignty from the river to the sea. That's Netanyahu's political party. But um, I don't see how there can be one state because Israelis are not going to give up the idea of a Jewish state. The idea of a, the the one state idea is, and it's supported by Israelis like. Gideon Levy, I mean, these are outliers, Gideon Levy and Amira Haas and others. Everybody has the same rights, equal equal rights. Now, that doesn't address all the points you've been making about statism and socialism within the system. It doesn't call for reforming that, unfortunately, because those people are not laissez-faire advocates like you and I are safe. But uh, but still, they, they say as far as they believe in rights, they think there should be everybody should have the same rights from the river of the sea. But if you do that, it, it's not going to be what quote, Jewish state. And so it seems to me the overwhelming majority of Israelis are not going to go for that. So I don't, one state's ruled out, two states are ruled out. I guess that leaves the no state solution, which is what we ultimately favor, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's <laughs> what I believe. The no state solution is really what the best. Uh, I'll take a one state solution as a compromise. <laughs> <laughs> but the two-state solution is uh, is two states too many, if you ask me. And it's also completely unworkable. I think the fiction that there is a Palestinian state possible in the West Bank is just completely nonsensical. If you look at this, uh, here's a map. First of all, 18% of the West Bank is administered by the Palestinian Authority. So the West Bank is only, the West Bank and Gaza together are about 22% of Palestine. And 18% of that is administered by the Palestinian Authority, Area A. 22% is jointly Area B, and then 60% is Area C. So if you look at a map... A, B, and C are not like blocks on top of each other, right? A, B, C. It's all, yeah. it's all mingled together. Exactly. And so if you look at this map, what you see is this... It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is this is the thing that people don't get. People think, all right, well, maybe there's a bunch of settlers, and you know, we could find a way around it. But 
This is what settlements have created. If you look at what has happened to Palestinian lands, Palestinians live in mostly in this part that is area A, uh, sorry, area, yeah, area A, this light blue part that you see here, which are these tiny little areas that are separate from one another. They are separate from one another. They're separated by walls and by Israeli checkpoints. So they're completely under Israeli surveillance. And there's no way of moving around between them except going through Israeli land and Israeli checkpoints. And this makes movement here between those towns and cities just completely uh, unworkable for most people. It's it's enormously destructive, destructive of any kind of semblance of normalcy. You have all these lands that are being acquired by Israel. Uh, Israel's got all this orange area here that you see, which is the majority of the land. And they're building settlements on it. And it's impossible to have any kind of state for Palestinians on this land. If you look at it, here's another map from Wikipedia. As you can see, it's it's uh, the, the blue areas are just constantly expanding and most importantly, surrounding Palestinian areas. So you can't have a state over effectively what are 240 prisons. That's the best way to understand what the West Bank is. 240 prisons surrounded by Israelis. And the settlements are distributed all over the place, but not just distributed all over the place. The key thing to remember here is they are in the most of the strategic locations. They are on the hilltops. They are, uh, they are on top of all of the important water resources. So all of the water, re- not all, but increasingly more and more of the water resources are taken over by the settlements. They build the settlements over the water resources, and the Palestinians have no access to water, very little access to water, and they have no freedom of movement amongst these areas. So the entire thing is just completely unworkable, and I think... People like me used to sound crazy when we would say that the plan for Israelis is that they want to uh, ethnically cleanse the Palestinians. But, sorry, this is the other map that I was showing. The plan for the Israelis is that they want to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians. But now it's uh, really, it's, it's, it's this Gaza war is Israel's coming out of the closet party as um, we want to just get rid of them. And it's becoming very clear. This is what they're saying uh, people as part of, that are part of the ruling coalition in Israel are saying this about Gaza. It's only a matter of time before they say it about the West Bank. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're now at a point where some of the most important ministers in the government, the Minister of Finance, is saying this publicly. And um won't be long before um, other people start saying it. It's... Uh, yeah. It's very clear that they're going to be start that they're going to start saying the same thing about the West Bank. And of course, you know... Um, the thing about propaganda is that most people think, well, no, we're just, you know, we're not going to fall for that. Um, they declare that they can't do it. But once something like October 7 happens, and uh, there are so many questions about how that happened and how it was allowed to happen and how the all the surveillance uh, uh, infrastructure that Israel has around Gaza failed at that time. But once it does happen, then... Once people have been manipulated into anger about it, then it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that uh, wouldn't think of themselves as being decent human beings who would never support kicking somebody out of their home because of their religion. Mm. Now, don't see anything wrong with Gaza doing, with Israel doing what it's doing in Gaza. And they think, well, no, they're just going after Hamas. And it's uh, it's just a coincidence that they happen to destroy every single building in the city, that they've destroyed every single 
uh, piece of critical infrastructure that they've turned the entire city into an unlivable hellscape. No, they're just going after Hamas. They don't, even though the government itself is saying, no, we want to make it unlivable. We're going to try and get other countries to take the Palestinians. They just refuse to see that this is what it is about to get people out. Well, I think there's sort of a 007 complex. There's a license to kill, except it's 001. No one else has the license, right? So there's no other 00s. Israel is the James Bond of nations. And uh, I think I think what happened in Europe, of course, the Nazis uh, is, is part of the reason for feeling that. We After that, we, I think even uh, according to Gideon Levy, Levy uh, Golda Meir, who was a former prime minister, uh, said because of that, we we can do anything. All all is permissible now. So it is like a 007 license to kill attitude, and you can see it in action. I mean, every day you look at the headlines, look at the video from Gaza. Will is it ever going to end? The only way it's going to end is if every, when everybody leaves or everybody's dead. All the all the all the uh, Palestinians. I mean, I, I don't see how it's going to end bef- before that. If one person is alive, he could have a radical idea and begin to immediately begin to tell other people about it. That he, that, you know, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. I just hope, you know, now we've had an attack on Beirut, right, where a top uh, deputy in Hamas was killed, I guess by Israel. I'm not sure it was they've owned up to it, but who else would do it with the U.S.? So now is it, is, are things really going to spill over? I don't know if Hezbollah has responded. Uh, is it now going to spill over? We're we going to have a general war in the Middle East. Does the U.S. want to use it to go after Iran? Netanyahu has wanted to go after Iran. Trump wanted to go after Iran. You know, you have the Houthis uh, in the red, in the Red Sea, and the U.S. is shooting down drones. The U.S. has been you know bombing uh, places in uh, Syria and uh, Iraq, which it claims are Iranian related. Iran, you know, gets the blame for everything. You don't need any evidence. Just say Iran is behind it, and every, most people will go along. You don't even need to provide evidence. These are dark days. It's a heck of a way to start a new year. Because it's a heck of a way to end the old year. Indeed. I, I, I wish hope, you. I hope you have a good new year. <laughs> Thank you. Generally, as I said when I had Jeremy Hammond on, generally I try. Yes. To, uh, with every episode here, we have a constant running theme of Bitcoin fixes this. And we always try and uh, see how Bitcoin fixes this. And, um, <laughs> I don't know if Bitcoin is going to solve this. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I can see the way that it fixes it. Of, uh, you know, the, the entirety of... I think one point to get back to when you were saying, when we were discussing on the, the issue of land, see, for all of its uh, bloodshed, Zionism has, by its own metrics, failed in the two most critical um, metrics that you could measure it at. And the first one is the majority of Jews do not live in Israel. So if you wanted to make a homeland for the Jews, you failed because the majority of Jews don't want to live in Israel, even though they can get free housing, effectively subsidized housing. So any Jew who's currently in France or America or Germany or Argentina or Uzbekistan, they're living there. They have to pay rent like anybody else in their home. They could just get on an airplane, go to Israel, and they'll have subsidized housing from the government. And yet a majority of the world's Jews don't move to Israel. So that's, I think, very telling. And secondly, 
uh, a majority or close to a majority of people who live in historical Palestine are not Jewish. So there's about 2 million Palestinians in uh, Israel that are Israeli citizens because uh, the ethnic cleansing of 1948 was not complete. And then there's about 2 million in Gaza and there's about 3 million in the West Bank. There's about 7 million Jews and 7 million non-Jews. It's even. It's, a, it's approximately even. And uh, it's not clear how the numbers would go. I think, I mean, it was tending toward the Palestinians until recently, but I think with the Gaza war, it might be different because of all the death and all the people that are going to be displaced and all the people that are going to be leaving. Uh, but it's still nowhere near a majority, nowhere near an overwhelming majority that is Jewish in the land of Palestine. And I think the reason, you know, this is a very damning indictment of Zionism because even with a government that receives hundreds of billions of dollars of support from the world's fiat printer, which is the United States government and the Federal Reserve, the U.S. gives billions of dollars to Israel every year because they can print money. Even with all of these insane subsidies, you have still not managed to make Israel into the whole Jewish homeland because the majority of Jews don't live there. And a majority of the people who live there are Jewish. As, and it's in that Popeye quote, Israel was sold to Jews as, or and the world really, as the safe haven, the necessary safe haven. It's the least safe place. And there's been out, more out-migration in, in the, the last several years than, than in-migration from Israel. And a popular destination for younger Israelis has been over, over the last, I don't know, 10 years, I don't know if it's true at this moment, is Germany. So young Israelis are leaving Israel for lots of reasons, but a lot of it may just be, it's too tense here, too, stri- too much strife. Or it could be war any time. They go, they're going to Germany, Berlin and Munich and places like that. Think of the irony of that. That's, that's really weird. So it, I agree with you. It's, a fail, it's been a failed project, and I keep thinking, what would the early Jewish anti-Zionists and there's a long tradition. I've already talked about it. What would they be? Those guys be saying if they were alive today? I mean, I knew some of the later great ones, Rabbi Elmer Berger, for example, one of the founders of the American Council for Judaism, which still exists. You can find it online. Alan Brownfeld is the editor of its publication. Very good guy, very vocal guy. And uh, Alfred Lilienthal, an American Reform a Jew who was a, a devout anti-Zionist. And those guys are gone now. They they died in, in in old age, but they left behind lots of writings. You can find them in bookstores, used bookstores, online. You can find stuff. Uh, there's this tradition that almost you know very few people know about. I mean, my own family doesn't know about it. My Orthodox grandfather was an anti-Zionist, but he was, and I was too young to know what he was talking about. But at our Passover dinner seder's every year, you hold two. There's a line in the official book, which is called the uh, Haggadah, where you say, in the spiritual sense, next year in Jerusalem. That's the line. My grandfather would say, next year in Philadelphia. And we were already in Philadelphia. And even I didn't know what that meant. I was too young. And I wasn't asking questions back then. I wish I'd been more precocious. The family thought he must have been kidding. Oh, he's, he's just too old. He doesn't want to travel. No. After the 67 war, he blamed the Israeli Jews for the strife over there. I heard him do it. I heard him tell my mother that. 
And she, my mother couldn't believe she was hearing this from him. He's a, he's an Orthodox, he's an Orthodox Jew. He read the Talmud every day and prayed three times a day and knew the, the Torah back and forth. And she said, you ought to go and see what they've done. They've made the desert bloom. He said, I wouldn't set foot there. I would never go there. <laughs> uh, I wish I, I'd love to have a conversation. You know, he died a long time ago. I wish I had a conversation with him. Yeah, no, I think, and it's still the the, the anti-Zionist streak within uh, Judaism is still alive. There are a lot of uh, Zionists. There are a lot of anti-Zionist Jews, secular and religious. Uh, among the Orthodox, there's a very strong streak, uh, even in Israel as well. They they don't mind living there as Jews, but they mind a Jewish state. And I think um, I, I agree with that. I, I mind the Jewish state in Palestine for the same reason I would mind an Islamic state or a Christian state. I mean, I may not mind it if it was just um, Islamic or Christian or Jewish in terms of its insignia, but uh, what matters for me ultimately is property rights. If it's an Islamic state or a Christian state and a Jew or a Jewish state and people can own land regardless of their religion, then I'm fine with it. doesn't matter. Put whatever you want on the flag, call it whatever you want, sing whatever song you want uh, when the football team goes to the pitch. None of that stuff matters. I'm happy to do any of that stuff as long as people can have property rights. That's, that's what it comes down to. But to go back to trying to end on a positive note, I would say, so the point I was making is, uh, you know, Zionism has failed in its two objectives in terms of uh, the fact that the majority of the residents of Palestine, uh, historic Palestine, are not Jewish or very close to a majority are not Jewish. And a majority of Jews are not in Palestine. And that is in spite of all of the artificial support that has supported this insane idea over the past century with first the British government and then the American government who had the world's most powerful money printers running at full speed to try and support this um, insanity and sending weapons to make it happen. And I think if you wanted to have some kind of optimistic outlook on this, you would say, well, hopefully maybe Bitcoin would take away that money printer and then it would allow us to live a more natural order wherein people need to come to terms with the fact that, look, you can't just keep a land, take people's land because you have a money printer and a story that is 2,000 years old backing you up. People who have property need to accept it. And I, don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's too late at this point. I don't know if there's a coming back from this. And I think, um, I don't know if there's a, peaceful way that we could uh, come back to a peaceful coexistence because I think the the sad reality is that there's just been so much bad blood that it's difficult to see this uh, resolve in any uh, positive no, way. I agree. Especially over the last few months. I mean, you can't they, put toothpaste back in the tube. There's a lot of blood feuds and it's a light takes on a life of its own. You know, you can't just getting the history right is important. Just, because you want to know the facts, but that doesn't necessarily tell you, okay, what do we do today? Tomorrow? Absolutely. Very sad to hear all of this. Okay. I like what you're doing. I like what you're saying and uh, keep saying it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sheldon. I really appreciate you for joining us today and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for all your work. I will. Cheers. Cheers.